unchecked. Wow, episode 152 of the A2 show. Amazing. Yeah. This is a good one. This is a big one. Yes. Because today uh-huh. we are joined by none other than Sclerus Award. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to the world. Let the world know who you are and what you do. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. I am CNN's chief international correspondent. Right. Awesome. Amazing. Cool. That's Same. Yeah, very so simple, that's... but very powerful because very... there's a lot I want to ask and jump into. So let's, let's get right into, into the news. Can you tell uh, us about the places you've been? So some of the places I've been, um, well, I lived in New York and London as a kid. And then after I finished um college i lived in moscow beijing baghdad beirut uh yeah and then i came back to london but obviously i've traveled also syria iraq yemen afghanistan jordan georgia i mean there's i've i've been to a lot of countries you've you've been to places places. yeah yeah i bet you have your passport is like always full but here's the question (laughs) that i want to know yeah Mm. Uh, what was the year you've been in, like the Arabian Peninsula or the Arabian countries? Uh, well, I've been traveling in the Middle East from 2005 to present day, really. 2005. So that was like a really, really hard time in uh, Baghdad, right? Yeah. In Iraq at the time. Yeah. So you were you were there because, like, I remember that I was like six at the time, but I remember watching the news back then and like. For some reason, uh, reporters weren't treated, I think, I don't know how to say the word, but uh, like it was very sketchy and very hard. It, and It was extremely difficult and dangerous. And, yeah. you know, for a lot of reasons, this was, I went to Baghdad for the first time two years after the U.S. invaded Iraq. Mm-hmm. And any optimism that there was around the invasion from some people in Iraq quickly disintegrated when it became clear that the situation was chaotic, that the U.S. was completely underprepared for the day after. And there was an insurgency gathering steam. Journalists, as you point out, were a target because anyone who was affiliated or associated with the U.S. was considered to be a legitimate target. And, but, you know, the primary thing that I just experienced being there was the heartbreak of mm. the Iraqi people who had already endured so much so, yeah, and now were plunged into this absolute quagmire with no end in sight. And um, I just think it was a really, really awful time for a lot of people. It was. And uh, it was especially around the time of uh, the trial of uh, Saddam Hussein, who was captured i think by the u.s forces and mm-hmm. was handed over to the iraqi authorities so did you have any coverage during that time yeah so i actually i started out as a producer and i kept begging my bosses to let me go in front of the camera mm-hmm. and finally in 2006 they agreed to let me do that and they said you can go for your first time as a reporter for six weeks, but you have to go for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Eve, which are obviously wow. like three big holidays for mm-hmm. my family and I. Mm-hmm. But of course, I jumped at the chance. And then I guess it was just a few days after Christmas that Saddam Hussein was executed. And they did mm-hmm. it like that. Like, I mean, obviously, it had been expected to happen at some point, but they did it really quickly. There were no senior correspondents able to get in because they were all on their vacation. So for me, it was like baptism by fire. I spent 36 hours in the live shot position, really just learning how to be a live reporter and 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 how to do this job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was surreal. It was like a real moment in history. And it was my first real moment being on the news. Wow. I mean, that's that's amazing. So were you there in Kavmiya, Iraq, when they, you know, hung him or were you? I was in our Baghdad bureau, which the, because Baghdad was so dangerous at that time, we basically lived in these compounds. And one of my biggest frustrations <laughs> with the way we covered the war was that we could only tell it either from these bunkers where we were living or by going out with the US military, which was an important part of the story. But we weren't telling the story of the Iraqi people. Yeah. And, and that was making me crazy. Even after Saddam was executed, you wanted to be out on the street talking to Iraqis. How do you feel about this? This is the end of an era. What does this mean? But you couldn't. You, ha- you could send out your local cameraman to do that, but it was still too dangerous for us to go out and do that. And I found that 
really frustrating as a journalist. I felt there was so much of the story that we weren't telling. Oh, interesting. What do you mean like so, the Iraqi people as opposed to like if you were with the military, you can really um, interview? Well, because too? when you're with the, in, in the U.S. military, right? I mean, you have to keep in mind like it was very tense in Iraq at that stage. So the U.S. military would have these cordial relations with some of the like the local sheikhs or, uh, you know, Iraqi military personnel, mm. but they couldn't really just like walk around and shoot the breeze with people, yeah. right? They had to have a very specific focus to any mission they did outside the wire, which means when you're kind of leaving your compound. And that meant that they really were limited in the perspective they were able to get and the way they were able to engage. And, and that meant that we were limited. So when I was spending time with the US military, it was more, I was covering like operations they were doing. I was covering the counterinsurgency uh, tactics yes. that they were trying to implement, as opposed to Normal sitting people. down with ordinary Iraqis whose lives have been turned upside down and getting a better sense of what is your life like now? Mm -hmm. wow. wow, and when you're doing international correspondence news that just reflects the people there right so if, like if you're just doing news on the like the extremists and the counterinsurgents that's all we hear about but if you're not interviewing and you're not people, getting you're, you're totally out. right and so you know if you like people who watch a lot of my work know that I am almost more interested in the people in the middle. Like that's who I want to talk to. I want to talk to the ordinary people who are like surrounded by the craziness and are trying to like protect their children and go about their daily lives. Yeah. I'll never forget being in Gaza once. And uh, there was an Israeli incursion into Gaza. It was after the uh, kidnapping of Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier. And I remember this woman coming out of her house, a Palestinian woman, and she went and she picked up a roadside bomb, okay, that Hamas had planted for Israeli tanks to hit. And these Hamas guys run up to her and they're like, what are you doing? Hadja, you know, like put it down. It's not for you. It's for, it's for the Zionists. It's not for you. And she just was like, you know what? I don't care who it's for. I don't want it in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I yeah. don't want it anywhere near the ordinary people who are living here. And to me, I was like, now that woman is a hero. That is a Makawama. Yeah, that's like some serious resistance right there. Oh, you, you and those are the stories. You <laughs> <laughs> really did. Because, I mean, we both are from yeah. the region. And for me, especially coming from Lebanon, I know that, like, um, there are a lot of normal people that just want to live a normal life, right? And, of course. And there are a lot of extremists that are that are mixing the whole, you know, pod and making it hard much. to live a normal life. Um, I remember, like, being in high school, and um, I had some friends start coming from Syria. A lot of Syrian kids started joining our school, and um, I didn't know too much about the situation that was happening in Syria. I just knew that, like, these regular people were joining our class. Um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about mm. what, what happened? What's yeah. What's so I, you know, I think like, a, I've covered a lot of war, but there's mm. always going to be one war that you cover that breaks your heart and that grabs your heart and won't let go. And for me, that was Syria because it was such, um, it was such a David and Goliath situation in Syria where like, you know, it started out as a peaceful uprising, even when it morphed in in the early days to an armed uprising. You were talking about like teachers and carpenters with AK-47s who were fighting against a pretty sophisticated army with an air force and the full backing of, of some international serious countries. international superpowers. Yep. So you already had this dynamic where it was like, I, you know, and I would find it hard as a journalist not to say sometimes to the rebels, like, are you crazy? Why are you going out there and fighting them? You don't even have two-way radios. Like you're in way over your head here. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing that was so striking about Syria for me was I had never really covered a conflict where civilians were being targeted so ruthlessly, where it was literally like bombing hospitals, bombing schools, using chemical weapons, using nerve agents and, and, and blistering agents against ordinary people. But that's people. a war crime, is that not? Oh, I mean, there's been so many war crimes committed in Syria that, that I, I really think 
people have lost track. And that's part mm. of the problem is that at a certain point, people just start to become desensitized to it. And they're like, all they can say is, oh, that's terrible. But if they can't think of a solution, they don't really know what to do about it. So, and I wish that people understood that, like speaking to your point, Ali, about like, you know, Syrian kids coming to your class and stuff. Like, mm -hmm. I just wish that people understood more broadly and especially in the West that like, you know, no Syrian wants to leave their beautiful home in Aleppo and all their friends who they grew up with and stuff so that they can like, you know, steal your resources and take advantage of your privileges. They'd rather be in Aleppo. Okay. But they can't. And the only chance they have of survival and of a future for their kid is to get out. And I feel like sometimes we have such a negative almost mean-spirited view of refugees. And I think it's born out of this misunderstanding that somehow yeah. refugees are trying to game the system as opposed to, no, these people just had their world blown up and torn apart. And this is the yeah. best hope they have for giving their kids a future. Yeah, I think uh, there's also another point where, especially in the case of uh, Syria, now there are generations of kids who grew up without a home. Now, mm -hmm. as of now, speaking of 2020 today, right? Generations. And this can affect them mentally. When you grow up, you have no home, no country to go to. No one's accepting you. I mean, it doesn't take any kind of doctor or psychiatrist to understand that this can mentally break you down. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is the future looking like for these countries that have been war torn like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, like, is there hope or? I mean, look, I am fundamentally an optimistic person. So I'm always mm -hmm. going to say there's hope. Um, because to me, the minute you say there isn't hope, then you get into this dangerous trap of being like, well, then it's okay not to do anything because there's no hope. Right. And I, I don't subscribe to that. And I think particularly, um, in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, given that the U.S. invaded these countries, um, there is uh, an obligation to um, to try to leave it in a better state than you um, entered it in. So I think that look, there's there's definitely bright spots. I think Afghanistan is facing some huge challenges, and I think Syria is going to face uh, real challenges. I think you're absolutely right, Adi. You're looking at like this. Um, lost generation, basically. Like these kids didn't go to school. These kids saw their friends and loved ones killed. These kids saw babies killed. Um, they know nothing but violence. Uh, their only saviors uh, often were extremists, right? Who put all sorts of ideas in their heads. So they are living in a really challenging environment right now because even if they wanna change their lives, even if they want to do something different, then, you know, carry a gun. What can they do? What are they qualified to do? What are their opportunities in Syria in rebel held, in, you know, in the one rebel held area there is left? And so I don't want to try to downplay the damage that's been done. And, and, and I don't want to make it sound rosy or anything like that. But I still you think just want it's played as it is, basically. Yeah. But, but and I also want us to like, you know, I don't want us to be so pessimistic that we say it's okay to give up on these people because there's still mm -hmm. a lot of potential there. And with the right uh, opportunities and the right investment, there's, you know, Syrian people are capable of doing tremendous things. They just need mm -hmm. the world not to give up on them. Are there? I mean, it's looking kind of hard, I'll be honest. Yeah. No. But are is. there normal places? Are there normal people, like normal functioning areas within Syria right now? Um, I mean, define normal functioning. Like, I, you know, the regime is now in control of two thirds of the country, right? And um, there's less fighting right now than at any stage during the conflict, but there's still heavy sanctions. Um, there's terrible corruption. Um, I don't think anywhere in Syria looks normal right now. You have the added stress of COVID as well. Um, there are places where it's not dangerous right now in terms of bombs falling. But um, normal, no. Well, I mean, the bombs falling part, like I'm, I live in Irbid, which is in Jordan, right? And I'm pretty sure you've heard of that. We're yeah. 15 minutes away from Dara, which is the most southern mm -hmm. Syrian town. Now, I think it was two years or three years ago when the 
Russian planes were like airstriking mm-hmm. Dara. I'm not too sure mm-hmm. if it was two or three years. But I felt the effects of the bomb in my apartment in Erbil. Wow. Like, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Like, I, I remember waking up that night to the whole like apartment shaking, and I was like, and I'm 50 minutes car ride away from that. So, yeah. what about the people that are right under those? Like, yeah. it's crazy. No, so, it's from here, intense. I, I I want to segue into what was the most dangerous situation you were ever put in getting into the... I, I know you guys ask this a lot, but... No, it's really not that. To... It's not that. I mean, there's been a few. There's yeah. been a All few. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk about them. I Well, when I was living in Baghdad, uh, we lived in a place called the Palestine Hotel initially. Mm. And the Palestine Hotel was next to another hotel called the Sheraton. And the U.S. military had some... Um, personnel in the Sheraton. And then the Palestine was uh, us, the Associated Press, and like maybe Al Hara, uh, which was a US sponsored um, news channel. So we came under attack. It was a triple suicide car bombing. The first uh, car bomb blew up. It was actually, it was during Ramadan as well. And it was just wow. after Iftar. And so the first. Um, the first suicide bomber blew himself up at like, we have these blast walls around the compound and he sort of made a hole in the blast wall by blowing himself up. And then the second bomber went in and blew himself up at the second blast wall to make an even bigger hole. And then the third was a cement mixer truck filled with explosives. We were already after the first two bombings thinking we were going to die, honestly, like all the windows had blown in the doors had come off their handles, like, cause it's a forceful blast and not far from where we were. And we understood that we were under attack. And so we Mm. were trying to go into this, uh, like kind of like a panic room with metal doors that you just, I mean, it's, it's never a good scenario if you end up in there. Cause it basically having a panic room to begin with is not a good, yeah, it's not a good (laughs) scenario. Uh, and then the third, this big cement mixer truck basically got stuck on some razor wire. Mm. And so he was lurching back and forth and our security guys were on the balcony watching and he was lurching back and forth, trying to push the axle of the car over the razor wire. But he also understood that someone from the U S military and the Sheraton hotel was going to kill him like any moment. Right. Mm. This sort of wonder why it hadn't already happened, but that's another story. And so he just blew himself up because he was like, I got to do it now or I'm going to or they're going to shoot me before I get blown up. So he blew himself up and it was just massive blast. And if it had been if he had gone past the razor wire and got right up to the entrance of the hotel, I'm sure we would all be dead. But because it was one of these like crazy uh, old like 1980s structures, yeah. it was like a cement box basically and so and he was far enough away that um none of us were killed i mean there was a lot of damage to the hotel um he obviously was killed and uh, it was very surreal to like come down afterwards and there's like little parts of him all over the place and um and you're just like what a waste like what i mean Mm -hmm. wow what it's wow. really hard to get your head around something like yeah, that. Yeah, it really is. So that was um, that was probably one of the most dangerous. And then I had a few close calls in Syria too. Once I got, we got stuck in a gun battle, and then the rebels retreated, which meant we were on the wrong side of the front line, and we were running to try and get out of danger. And I was wearing an abaya, and it was like at very muddy. And I was wearing a bulletproof vest and I couldn't run through the mud. And I, the only thing to take shelter behind were these olive trees, which are like skinny. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> you know, or like the olive. bullets were. I've whizzing. seen olive trees. I don't <laughs> yeah, know what yeah. you were thinking. Though, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. At, the right, at the heat of the moment, I don't blame you. Honestly. I, don't blame I, I mean, you take whatever cover you can. Pretty but much, yeah, an yeah. olive tree is not optimal. Um so that was also very, very scary. But I genuinely really try to avoid, I don't like being in situ. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to glamorize the lifestyle of the war correspondent. And I mean, you guys can probably relate to this. If you've spent time in the Middle East, you understand like there's nothing exciting no. about bombs. Okay. They really suck. They do. 
Um, they're awful. They're petrifying. You don't want to be anywhere near one. You don't want anyone you care. You don't want anyone to be near one. So yeah. unless you're um, crazy or a psychopath. Yeah, yeah. And some people maybe do get kind of a thrill from being in really dangerous situations. I'm, I'm not one of those people. I get just really scared. And uh, want to not too. I, I don't like it. So then why do you do it? If it's yeah, so, so these areas are so dangerous. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I first of all, the more I do it and the more experience I get, I really do try to avoid those front lines situations okay. where i'm in active like kinetic you know gun battle or something mm -hmm. um and then i do it because somebody has to tell these stories and i feel like we need to tell them with some humanity and with like respect for the people and respect for the culture and the places and empathy and compassion and I don't know. I, I feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, if that's you. a true calling. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's great. We've had like people from China, Uyghur, we've had people from Yemen, from Belarus. And every time we have people talk about these like hot topics, they're always like, should I show my face on camera? <laughs> should I not? Yeah. In the Uyghur situation, or especially in Yemen, the guy wasn't even allowed to show his face on camera. Pretty much. Yeah. We had, we even had like a uh, shout out to Lance Corporal Jason, who is in the UK military. Mm -hmm. He wasn't allowed to show his face, but he's been on tours and he's seen war firsthand. Right. Mm. So how did you guys meet each other? Me and him, we grew up uh, with each other. Mm -hmm. he, Ali used to live in Kuwait. We went to the same middle school. Something, but man. then he split went to lebanon went i to stayed lebanon. in Kuwait because that's where i'm from but yeah mm -hmm. now I'll, I'll, this is a question if you don't want to answer that's fine but i'm very interested in this kind of topic so i'll mm. ask um uh, seeing all these different things like explosions kills suicide bombings and like actual war-torn countries has it taken any toll on your mental health Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, well, first of all, um, you guys should read my book and order it and tell yeah, your listeners. Yeah. Oh, Looking. word. It. Check it. You there can get you it. Go. Link in the description below. You guys should. Yeah. Um, so I talk a little bit about this in my book and it's a hard thing to talk about because for whatever reason, it's still a taboo among journalists. Mm. And let's be very clear about this. If you were someone who was constantly seeing terrible things and it didn't take any toll on you, you're either psychopathic or lying. Thank you. Like <laughs> that's not normal. That's yeah. weird. It's more normal and more emotionally mature to be like, wow, this is hard. Now, the thing that people don't understand about witnessing trauma and how that can take a toll emotionally is that when you see it in the movies, it's like, I went to the war zone, I saw the dead child, I came back, I had nightmares, I cried a lot, I felt sad, right? And if that's the way it happens in that kind of linear chronological way, mm. that makes it easier because you're like, oh, I know why I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling sad about the dead baby and I had a nightmare yesterday and this all kind of makes sense and I'm processing it. My experience with covering war has been you know, you're in the field, in the war zone, you see the dead child, it's shocking, it's awful, but you really have to be just focused on what you're doing and getting your material together and blah, blah, blah. And so you just keep powering through it, powering through it. Then you leave the country and you go home and you're with your friends and you feel a little bit like a fish out of water. Like, what am I doing here? Yeah. Like, do I belong here? Mm -hmm. And then you're spending time with your family, your loved ones, your husband, whatever it might be. And you're kind of feeling not really in tune with mm. them and you don't really feel connected to your life and you feel kind of numb, but you're not sad. That's not the right word. You're detached. You're numb and you're, and you're irritable. And you're like, why am I irritable? Why do I feel sad? Why do I feel detached? And so it's not like, oh, wait, this is because of that. You're just thinking, why am I in a really bad mood all the time? Is that right? PTSD? Is that right? Like, I mean, you know, look, there's there's different sort of uh, levels of like PTSD and what mm. rises to the level of being PTSD and what is also just um, decompressing from like an enormously stressful situation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, look, PTSD at its most acute is, is like very intense. I've never experienced anything like that where you literally are having panic attacks and recurring nightmares. And, um, you know, you might have severe, uh, substance abuse issues, for example, Mm. there are all sorts of, um, tells let's say Mm -hmm. for me, the thing I struggled with was just feeling a little bit detached from my life, feeling like I didn't really want to be me anymore as in, in my normal life. And what I learned is that you have to be able to embrace joy and love and normalcy in your normal life. If you want to be able to keep covering war, because otherwise you just give, 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 give. And then one day there's nothing left. And you can't do it anymore and you have a nervous breakdown or you become an alcoholic or you engage in self-destructive behavior, whatever it might be. So you really need to be proactive about your mental health and checking in with yourself and being good to yourself and talking to a therapist when it's necessary. And yeah, I think it's really important that we be able to have that conversation. It is. And that's why we always ask those people who come and have seen these dangers and heartbreaking things about their mental health and their experience, because we're even me personally, I'm trying to break this taboo of we should, because especially, especially in the Middle East, right? If mm. you suffer from like mental health or anything, what do they say? They say be a man. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what makes a man, right? Like I'm not okay. And people tend to not talk about it for some reason. Yeah. So I'm trying my hardest to like make it okay. Yeah. In any way possible, even if it's with my friends, through this podcast which is why like it's important to us because in the end of the day, we're all human, right? Whether mm-hmm. you're a news reporter or you are actually, you know, going through whatever that was going through on in Iraq, Syria, wherever, we're all humans in the end of the day. Yeah, right? of course. It's, it's not, it's not wrong to feel not right. Right. Like, on, so. Yeah. On yeah. the, on the issue of mental health, I just want to know, maybe, you know, um, the people who go very much to the extreme, like the jihadis, mm. members of mm. ISIS, what's happening in their heads? <laughs> Why do they take that extreme? So, I mean, listen, there's not like, there's not one rule for all of them, or it's not like a one size fits all. And I would say my experience with jihadis is much more with Western jihadis, right? Okay. Because I can relate to them more in terms of like, I understand how they grew up because I grew up in a similar way or whatever. So um, I have more of an insight into their mentality. Like people who live in like Europe and America then move to like- Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Like people like, exactly. Like kids who joined ISIS from the United States or the UK, like wow. why, how does that happen? Wait, that's, why okay. that, actually, that actually happens? Oh, it happened. It happened a lot in Syria. Yeah. This is news to me, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. No. So there are like thousands of foreign fighters in Syria um, and many of them from the West. Okay. Um, And I used to talk to quite a few of them because that's a part of my job is trying to understand this phenomenon. Why would somebody leave a nice house in London and go to Syria and join a group like ISIS? And what you find is, as I said, there is a different story for a lot of them, but some of them went because they were just so upset by what was happening um, with, you know, the Assad regime and all these people being killed and children being killed. And they were just seeing these images over and over again and feeling so helpless and feeling that like the Muslims have been left to die by the international community. And, and um, so then they felt like they needed to go and like defend their fellow Muslims. Uh, of course, when they got there, what happens is you know, it's never quite what you think it's going to be. And you are very susceptible to having your brain washed when you're in a situation like that. And you're also becoming desensitized to violence because you're seeing it every day. Mm. And it's really easy to get radicalized in a situation like that. Now, some of them were radical before going anyway, but I often compare it to like gangs in the US in terms of the appeal it has. Sometimes people want to assume that like, oh, they join ISIS because they're they're psychopaths and they're evil and they want to cut off heads. And there's definitely a few of those, right? No one's saying they don't exist. But far more than that, you have 
I would say young men who feel like they don't have a sense of purpose, they don't have a sense of belonging, they don't have a sense of self-respect or dignity. A lot of these guys from the West had criminal backgrounds, right? Um, and drug problems and all the rest of it. These were not good Muslims with like deep Muslim knowledge. The vast majority of them, I mean, I would talk to them and like, I mean, their knowledge of the Dean was like super poor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. Really super poor. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't about that. It's about looking for something that <clears throat> empowers them and gives them respect and gives them a sense of belonging and being part of this brotherhood and all of this set to the heady sounds of Nasheed and, you know, like that can be pretty intoxicating stuff if you're living a pretty boring suburban life. I mean, yeah, the, that was very well put. Like, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, but the thing is, like, it still doesn't make sense to me because, like, I don't know. What's fun about killing is there's nothing really fun. Have they been so, like, detached from love to the point where they don't, like, they don't know what's going on or what is like yeah i think the problem you. is is it's a slippery slope right so you, you, once you've killed one person then you've killed two and and then mm -hmm. you kind of can't really go back you know yeah you and i knew one guy who i used to talk to a lot and he wasn't with ISIS originally. And then by the time he joined ISIS, it was so hard for us to talk anymore because I was like, you really are kind of a psychopath now. I can't really have conversations with you about how it's okay to like behead Shiites or what, because it's just, I, I just can't. It's not, it's no longer productive, this conversation either. Yep. I don't feel like we're helping mankind by understanding each other better. I feel like, honestly, you're at a level of cuckoo where it's like yeah. nothing. You're human without right. humanity, basically. Yeah, and he ended up dying. So you know. I see. It's I mean, well, I don't know what else anyone else was expecting, to be honest. Yeah. Like, well, most of them going? did die. Most of them did die. Is ISIS still going, right now? I mean, no, they're pretty much defeated, but okay. like the seeds are always there, and this is what mm. people are so, you know, they have such short memories, particularly in Washington. Sometimes it's like, guys, like. ISIS didn't just come about because there's a bunch of lunatic Muslims who want to blow themselves no. up, right? I ISIS think they were based off Al-Qaeda. Yeah, it was formed in a prison in Iraq called Camp Bukha. It was a U.S. military prison, okay? And it was the first time that the Ba'athists, who were a bunch of like whiskey-drinking Saddam loyalists, were in the same prison as the like mutatarafin, like the Al-Qaeda types, right? Oh, wow. And they're in the same prison they have nothing in common except for the fact that they hate they America. Love they hate and America. They hate Shiites. So then they start. So what do they do? Well, the Al Qaeda guys are like, here's what we bring to the table, right? We're excellent terrorists. Like we blow things up, we cut heads off, and you know. And then the Baathists are like, here's what we bring to the table. We can have the garbage collected. We can run a state. And so the two of them join forces, and then you have. Uh, well, first of all, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but then you have ISIS, right? Pretty it wasn't much, just yeah. a terrorist group. It was the terrorist state, basically. Yeah. And that's what made them so dangerous. Mm -hmm. And also, so, okay, you have to understand the Iraq background, but then you also have to understand, like, the whole reason ISIS was able to spread was because of the crazy vacuum created by the fact that Assad was able to massacre hundreds of thousands of his own people, and no one in the international community did anything about it. And so, of course lunatics like isis are going to come in and fill that void mm -hmm. and and take power and take territory based on that and that's why i always say to people isis is a symptom it's not the cause it's a symptom of other things happening uh and i think sometimes we need to like just change the framework or at least try to think occasionally in a different way about things uh, there is a theory, and this is we're gonna head into controversial zones now. So if you're not <laughs> okay. you guys okay. can click off the video now. But uh, there, there are theories that, like, uh, basically the United States government or some rich Saudis have been funding 
the terrorist organization. Now, I'm not saying I believe that. I'm just saying that there are people who do believe in that kind and, of stuff. So. And, you know, and you know why? I understand why. Because if you're a normal Muslim, okay, mm. and you and you, you know, have pride in that, mm-hmm. how heartbreaking and soul-destroying and mind-melting is mm. it to see these lunatics carrying out such grotesque acts of hatred in the name of your prophet, in the name of your deen? It's like, you can't make sense of that. It's so no. wrong, it's so evil, it's so twisted, it's so sad, that of course it's natural to be like, this must be the Israelis or it must be the Americans or it must be, I don't know, anyone, but don't say that this is ours, right? This isn't, we don't have ownership of this. This isn't about Islam. This isn't about the Ummah. And so I understand why people come up with all sorts of conspiracy theories because it's really painful to have to try to say, no, partly this is our problem too. And partly it's the, the U.S., and but not because they're secretly funding terrorists, but because uh, look at Iraq and, you know, look at Syria. But I think that people tend to come up with conspiracy theories when it's too painful to face reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, I have to say, whenever you speak in Arabic, like I, I'm just super sorry because your pronunciation is on point. Yeah. To, no. You know, blue eyed, blonde haired people. <laughs> Speaking my language very well, so <laughs> if I do look surprised, it's because I really am, right? It's just I don't know, yes. but uh, yes, yeah. Well, there's also another theory that. Uh, <laughs> oh boy! Again, listen, you can, you want to answer them? You, you can. Okay, you want us to move it. on? We can move on. But they say basically that. Uh, okay, so most news channels are basically, you know, like I don't want to read what's on the screen, so I'll say. It. <laughs> Sugar caught it away. It's bullshit. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, fake news, uh, you mean? The, yeah, fake, fake news. Fake news. All right, okay. What, tell us about so, that. So, so here's what I think we need to like. There's two sort of elements to this. Okay. <laughs> the first is that I think we all understand in this day and age, now that we have a much wider variety of people telling stories and putting their narrative out there, and often that counters the official narrative, right? I think we all understand that people do have their own biases, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no such thing as like truly 100% objective reporting. Everyone is bringing something from their upbringing, their education, their background, their race, their religion, whatever it is, they're bringing some of that into their perspective and into their the way they tell stories. That is absolutely the case. So can we say that one news channel is the absolute God gospel truth? No, you're going to say, okay, this news channel is going to tell me like how the Americans see this. And this news channel is going to tell me more about how the Brits see it. And this news channel is going to tell me more about how the Iraqis see it or whatever it might be. What is crucial, though, is that we don't undermine mainstream media to the point where we say it's all garbage. It's not garbage, okay? because the vast majority of journalists, certainly who I know, still anchor their reporting in facts. And so even if their stories have some of their own perspective or spin on it, it's still based in fact. There are Unless way too Fox many. <laughs> there are way, I, listen, let me tell you something actually. I worked at Fox when I started out my career, I was 23 right. years old and the people who are in the field are also just doing their job. They're telling the truth. They're telling like, this is what happened behind me. There was a bomb, blah, blah, blah. The spin that you're referring to and the lies come from the talking heads and the spin doctors and all the rest of it and the anchors. Okay, masters of public. So so (laughs) my point being that it is one thing to have a healthy level of not even skepticism, but understanding that, yes, this channel is going to have a little bit this bias or this perspective, right? But it is another thing to say, oh, mainstream media is nonsense. It's not. As long as we all agree to use facts as the as the basis of our reporting, then we cannot be putting 
you know, a channel like CNN on par with a channel like Russia Today, which will just make things up, oh, which wow. will just tell like yeah. absolute lies about mm. things. Fair. So do you think do you think the proper way to approach news and mainstream media is to take it with a grain of salt? Would you <laughs> no, say I would say I would say have multiple sources for okay. your news. Okay, you know, that's, don't that's... just watch one channel. Definitely well, watch CNN, but watch the BBC <laughs> yeah. too. You, you watch Arabia not... <laughs> too. Uh -huh. And if you're a big Arabia watcher, make sure you watch Al Jazeera too Al -Jazeera. sometimes. And if you're a big Al Jazeera watcher, make sure you watch Al Arabiya sometimes. I mean, but here, listen, you, you, you can't deny that politics nowadays has more of a hand in different news segments. I'm not saying CNN, but like different other news channels that are like American based or American. But here's the thing. It's like, Ali, I think it always existed, right? It's just that the difference was when I was growing up in the U.S., there were three white guys on three channels who came on at 6.30 p.m. and said, this is the world according to America. And everyone mm -hmm. in America just accepted that that was the world. Mm -hmm. And that was true. And that was reality. And, and you know what? These men were fine journalists. I'm not trying to disparage them. But obviously, their perspective was the perspective of you know, one strata of the population. It wasn't the perspective of an African-American, probably. It wasn't the perspective maybe of an Iraqi refugee. It was mm -hmm. one perspective. But we assumed at that time in history in the U.S. that that was just truth, right? Wow. And there was nothing else. Now we understand things a little differently. We have social media mm -hmm. and we can listen to now the African-American, the Iraqi refugee, and the uh, nice middle-aged white guy, we can listen to all of them, right? And get different perspectives. As long as we're all basing, singing from the same song sheet in terms of like what facts are and like mm -hmm. what actually happened in terms of like this many people died and this was da, 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 da. That I think is really important. I also think it's really important to have some faith in, in, in sort of institutions. Like if yeah. the United Nations, comes to the conclusion that Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons, like, I'm going to go with, yeah, yes. I, you know, and based on everything I've seen, yeah, I'm going to go with, yes, I'm not going to go with, oh, no, it was the rebels, and they managed to do this, and then they climbed <laughs> up here, and then they turned into an acrobat, and then they went back, you know, it's like, no, no. Yeah, everyone okay, loves fair. conspiracy That's... theories, though. Everyone... I mean, everyone does love conspiracy <laughs> I mean, and let's face it, guys, the Middle East is like, it, it's the beating heart of the conspiracy theory world, right? I mean, I can't even tell Guilty. you. Uh, I mean, it's Guilty. like, and you know why? And I understand it because traditionally, like in the Middle East, especially, you know, during like various dictatorships, you grew up you didn't believe the official narrative because you knew it was a lie. You were never going to say that publicly, but you were skeptical about the official narrative, right? Yeah. And what that does is that erodes your faith in in like the idea that yeah. there is official mm -hmm. narrative, which means that everyone is sitting there drinking their kahwa, trying to come up with other theories for like why things are happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, pretty much. All I right. mean, <laughs> I read conspiracy theories all the time, but I don't believe them. I'm going to be That's like good. super Just honest. Just for entertainment. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Like, <laughs> even if I don't like... There's no Illuminati in any of that stupid <laughs> bullshit, but it's fun to read about, right? Sure, just, sure. I mean, you know, as yeah, long as you know it, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, it is what it is. Yeah. So, at the end of the day, yeah. You, you were talking about how uh, we know as a fact that Syria was using chemical gases against its people, right, um, by the UN, and that's wrong <laughs> against all human rights. What happened after that? So basically what happened was, you know, so President Obama had said that the use of chemical weapons would be a red line. Okay. Meaning that if Bashar used chemical weapons against the people, that there would be some kind of uh, hell to pay for it, basically, right? Yeah. Okay. But the reality was that the U.S. didn't really want to get involved in another military intervention. Iraq was obviously a disaster. Libya pretty quickly turned into a disaster. And so they were trying to look for escape routes, right? What is a way that we can get out of doing this while still preserving some integrity or saving some face? And the way they came up with it was the Russians stepped in and they were like, what if we say we'll help make sure that all the chemical weapons are taken out of the country? And the White House was like, great, perfect, solved, thank you, yes, right? 
And to be fair, a lot of chemical weapons were taken out of the country. Now, the problem is that if you're the United States of America and you say that there's a red line and then someone crosses the red line and you don't really do anything to punish them. Yeah. What does that say about the role of the U.S. in the world? What does that say about what it means when the U.S makes a really strong statement like yeah. this is a red line. And, and what we saw in Syria was that President Putin and Russia saw and he was like, oh, wait, I don't think the Americans are going to do anything here. And he just jumped in. He was like, I'm going all in on Assad. I'm going to fly sorties for them, blow up hospitals for them, be behind them 100 percent, and I'm going to make them win. And what happened? They did all that. And Assad right. won. And so I understand why America didn't want to get involved militarily. There's plenty of sensible reasons. Mm -hmm. But what I would say America maybe, you know, needs to be careful about or thoughtful about is if you say Assad must go, then you probably need to do something to make him go. If you say chemical weapons are a red line, then you probably need to actually make them a red line. There needs to be some kind of matching between walking the walk and talking the talk or talking the talk and walking the walk. And Lyndon Johnson, the former president of the U.S., had a great line where he was like, if you tell a man to go to hell, you best be sure that you can make him go there. Right. Because otherwise you tell him to go to hell and don't do anything. to, And then like it becomes dangerous (laughs) for you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because you've upset someone. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So I. I, Yeah. All right. Uh, By the way, we 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 went way <laughs> overboard our time limit. Like, no, we're this still is... on summer song time, dude. No, dude, we, yeah. we this is an hour and a half now. No, 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 no we got six minutes left. <laughs> oh, don't worry about make it. it count. <laughs> make it make count. It count. Oh wow, <laughs> damn, damn. All right, uh, uh, we've seen it. Yeah, quick. we've seen it. Now we've seen it. I mean, we were talking about. We've been talking to. We've talked to an Uyghur lady, and she was telling us how like millions of people in China right now are getting. Um, in concentration camps and they're being mm-hmm. tortured and abused and i see it in i mean in yemen these issues are happening and they're all over the world right now in lebanon come on <laughs> right yeah. there's so much poverty and war and um why like has the world turned a blind eye to china specifically so we can talk about that because that's like where it's the most extreme right now so i don't think the world's totally turned a blind eye to china i mean people are talking about the Uyghur issue and governments are talking about the Uyghur issue. But listen, it's really complicated because Mm. China is a superpower. It's the second largest economy in the world, right? And will be the largest in in no time at all. So uh, that means that countries like Pakistan, for example, which normally would probably be really outspoken on behalf of their Muslim brothers, are like, well, who's gonna build that port for us if we come out and criticize the Chinese and then the Chinese are not gonna build it for us. So a lot of people value China too much as an investor or supporter, whatever it might be, to be willing to really um, be very critical of what they're doing. Uh, and that's just, uh, that is just turning a, a blind a reality. Eye, yeah, that's, that's turning a blind eye. That's the definition of turning a blind eye. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, sorry, there's I'm just going to be super honest. <laughs> there's a lot of blind eyes being turned, uh, okay. you know. Uh, And because I just feel like no one has the appetite anymore, least of all the U.S. these days, Mm -hmm. for intervening and getting involved in other people's problems. And, you know, I get that. I understand that. But then I'm like, we can't have this conversation again like we did after the genocide in Rwanda, where we were all like, never again, never again. If basically it's like, yeah, it will happen again and again, but, you know, we're just not going to do anything about it. The thing is, when I look through history, right, Germany was superpower at the time, Nazi Germany and World War Two. And like there was a huge intervention and like the people intervened during the Holocaust and things like but, that. You know, and, they waited a really long time to do that. I mean, the they, U.S. waited a really long time. Waited. Every other country was like, oh, shit, we got to go. Like, now, right? The U.S. was like. Uh, (laughs) yeah i mean and the u.s was like that in the first world war too they were the u.s traditionally doesn't want to get involved in other people's problems they're they're far away they're a big country they've got their own stuff going on that's true Um, i want to say i disagree and when they intervene well no sorry i mean okay like don't get me wrong i'm not saying it uh, let's put it this way yes go ahead 
they will absolutely get involved when there's a strong national interest mm-hmm. in it for them, right? When they have a strong natural a national interest in doing so. But I mean, um, you know, it does that is not necessarily the thing the same as like there being a just cause. Cool. Okay. Fair. And with yeah, the, I, yeah. Well, the last thing you tell me, I just want to like hear from you. What do you think? Like, so for someone like me. I'm Lebanese and I live in the States just because I can't live in Lebanon right now for my career, mm. for my safety and security. Um, what are yeah, the things that makes you me could so do? sad? I know. And I choose to, if I could, and if I like, if there was a way, you know, if Lebanon was a functioning place, I would live there. Yeah. So what it's do you, a great place. What do you, I know, what do you recommend for like the people, I know it's hard for like people in Lebanon, people in Syria, people in the Middle East that, <sighs> I know <laughs> it's a tough question. I mean, you know, I, I uh, look, I get it. That, you need to, yeah. you need to, need, you know, you need to have your life and yeah. you need to live your best life and have a career. And, and when you're older, you know, provide for children and all the rest of it. I just hope that, you know, that in the back of your mind, and, and it's not for me to tell you this, it's really a personal decision, but that you still want to go back to your country, you still want to serve your country, you still want to help be a part of rebuild, you know, if there ever is political reform in Lebanon, and there is an improvement in the economic situation, and there is sort of a way forward to build a better future, then obviously, it, it, you know, people like you who have had the privilege of being educated overseas and traveling and working and have that, you know, incredible experience and that knowledge, it would be wonderful to see people like you participating in, in the rebuilding one at one point. I'm talking about Syria as well now, not Syria. so much Lebanon. Lebanon, Lebanon mm-hmm. doesn't need to be rebuilt. Per se. Well, parts of mm-hmm. parts of it do now, but not not in the way that Syria does. Um. But at the same time, I totally understand that, like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you also have to live your life. Thank you, Clarissa. Um, I think well, we have reached a time. <laughs> we have reached our time. And um, Stamp, uh, much pleasure to have you on the show again. What a talk. <laughs> what a talk. It's good. Yeah. Like, that's, I like well, this I'm really glad you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. I'm glad. And um, thank you, Ali and Ali. Yeah. Whoa, Clarissa. Thank, thank you, Clarissa. Well, here we go. If there's anything you would like to shout out, let the world know. You may do so now. Get the book. Uh, oh yes, get on the book. Fronts. Get the book and follow me on Instagram at Clarissa Ward CNN. Link in the description below. Yeah, make this sure. Has been... If you listen, if you learned anything from this, please make sure to share it. Right, that's how we share grow. It, subscribe, like, and learn. The more people stuff. hear about this, the more we all learn about it. So. Uh, yes like subscribe share it share. Uh, <laughs> this is usually how we sign out salute to cover the cam <laughs> right yes. i have a friend who can sleep through a whole day just gets up to either use the toilet or drink water that's it and goes right back to sleep hmm. so how to how <laughs> but how i don't yeah. know how he does it <laughs> but for me it's because so, i'm super tired so it's like 17 hours is nothing. yeah so with that like parts that you regularly don't have the enough hours that you need for sleep then you're just saying that it's like four hours right and that's that's definitely problematic that in a long term is problematic right we, we said about all the consequences of that so i'm not surprised that you get to a point that you probably need 17 hours of sleep